We are thankful as we are concluding our portion in Hosea. Next week we will finalize in the final chapter. And in a sense, if you're here for the first time or you've missed a few bits and pieces of this series, the good news is, is that chapter 3 is really a summary of the whole book of Hosea. And so we've been in chapter 3 for a few weeks now. Last week was Father's Day, so we took a pause, and now we're right back into the final two verses. And so before we read it, I want you to turn to Hosea chapter 3. And as you turn there, I'm just going to lead us in prayer, and then we'll dive right into the text and the summary of this passage as well as verses 4 and 5. So let's just pray as you look for it. Father, we thank you because as we've just sung, our sins are many, but your mercy is more, Father. And we stand here today because your mercies are new every single morning. We stand here in thankfulness of you, Father. And I just pray that right now your word would convict us, that it would shape us, that it would mold us, and that our minds would be set on you as we hear the proclamation of your word, Lord Heavenly Father. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray, and we all say, amen. So I'm going to read Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll get into the text. Here's what it says. And the Lord said to me, go take and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I will also be to you. Verse 4, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come and fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So this is Hosea chapter 3. Again, Hosea chapter 3 is a summary of what the whole book of Hosea is all about. If you've been with us, you've noticed that when we went through chapter 4 all the way through, it was judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment. And there's a reason for that. And we're going to see it today. It'll be a lot clearer why there was so much judgment going on in the people of Israel. Why God was proclaiming such a judgment on his people. But Hosea 3, as it's already been explained, I just want to repeat some of the things we've covered already, is divided into, into three portions. It's God giving commands to Hosea, so that's verse 1. Verses 2 and 3, it's Hosea's response to those commands. And what we'll talk about today in verses 4 and 5 is the explanation of God's commands. To put it another way, and I think this will help us understand it a little bit better, verse 1 has to do with God communicating specifically with Hosea. He tells Hosea, go and love your wife who is committing adultery. And I'll get to verse 1 in a second again. So that's the first speech, is God to Hosea. Verses 2 and 3 is Hosea's response to God's command, but it's not to God, it's to his wife, Gomer. 
So God to Hosea, verse 1, verses 2 and 3, it's what Hosea is doing to Gomer. It's, it's a, a scene that deals with Hosea's response to an adulterous wife based on the command that God has given him. And then verses 4 and 5, as we've already known from the beginning of this series, Gomer is a representation of Israel, and Hosea is a representation of God. So everything that Hosea is doing towards Gomer and his, and his love for her, even though she's constantly cheating on him, is a reflection on God's dealing with Israel, even though they're in constant idol worship and constantly looking to other gods who are not him. And so in verses 4 and 5, which will be the main portion of, of today's message, we're understanding how God explains to Israel why Hosea is doing what he's doing with Gomer. And this will make sense in just a few seconds, so, so bear with me. But also in verse 3, we get the theme of the whole book. What is Hosea about? It's about a loving God, but here's the key thing. We don't get to define how God loves. This is a mistake in Christian culture where we want to define what God's love is like and we ignore the fact that God tells us what his love is like. He defines it for us and in a culture where love wins, cross equals love, Jesus loves you, God loves you and oftentimes those phrases are really structured in human emotion and not in godly love, we tend to miss the point of what God's love is truly like. And yet in Hosea, the whole book, and in this summary of the book in chapter 3, we see it. How do we see it? Verse 1, God's love is expressed in faithfulness. He is faithful when Israel is not. Hosea is faithful when Gomer is not. So let me just read this. We've already gone through it, so I'm just summarizing what we've covered the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. So Hosea, go love. The, the love word here is in verb format. That means action. Go and show actions of love. Go and take your wife. Love her again as she is being loved. Now that sounds like past tense, but actually is as she is currently in adultery. So to give you a practical example, Hosea does not need to call cheaters. You know the show, Cheaters? He doesn't need to roll up on Gomer with a bunch of cameras and let's get a TV crew and let's get an episode of Cheaters. He knows where he's going. He knows she's cheating. He knows that she's being unfaithful. So, so picture this, Hosea is going to walk into a room and as Gomer is in the act of committing uh, a sexual act with someone that's not her husband, Hosea will take her in that state. Now, why will Hosea do this? Well, the answer lies in the rest of verse 1. For the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, which we explain what that means about three weeks ago. Pastor Jonathan explained this. What's the emphasis of verse 1? God's love is expressed in faithfulness that as Gomer is cheating on Hosea or as Israel is turning to other idols, God is showing faithful love. Notice the contrast. Human love is inconsistent. It's based on passions. 
It's based on lust. It's based on emotional experience. God's love is not based on lust. It's not based on a, 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 a certain moment of passion. God's love is faithful. It's constant. A better word would be consistent. So while Israel and Gomer are inconsistent in their love, Hosea expressing God's love is showing consistent love. And God, through Hosea, is showing his consistent love towards Israel. So here's the point in verse 1. God's love is consistent. God can't be madly in love with you. He can't be crazy in love with you. Why? Because God's love is perfect. It does not get better than God's love. That's the whole point of Verse 1, that, that you and I, we can get madly in love with somebody. We can get crazy in love with somebody. But that crazy love can lose itself. That madly in loveness can lose itself. God's love isn't madly in love. It's perfect love. It is love. Your highest thought of love should be God's love. It's unchanging this is important to understand, and that's what we learn in verse 1 about God's love. Verse 2, another expression of God's love is his love redeems. Now, he does this through Hosea. So, Hosea looks at his wife. She's in the midst of cheating. And not only that, verse 2 says, so I bought her for 15 shekels. This is Hosea buying his wife back for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a latek of barley. What's the emphasis in verse 2? That God isn't only faithful in his love, but he redeems people in love in their worst condition. Hosea is buying back his adulterous wife. He's buying her back. It's a reflection of God's redeeming love for sinners. And I need to make this point because it's a mispoint about God's love, especially with Christ's work on the cross. Many of us in our circles today hear a message about the cross that has nothing to do with Jesus and it has everything to do with you and me. And so here's how it goes. When Jesus died on the cross, he was showing how valuable you are, how much he needs you, how he didn't want heaven without you. And that may make us feel good, and that may make us feel important, but theologically that's just far from the truth. That's missing the point. If your theology on the cross points to you, makes you look to you, and not to Jesus, you've missed the point of the cross. The point of the cross isn't for me to go, I'm valuable. No, it's to go, he's valuable. It's not to go, I'm worthy, I deserve this. Look at how much I deserve to be died for on a cross. No, it's quite the opposite. I didn't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. Because Jesus looked at me, and you know what he saw? He did see value, and it was zero. My value was nothing apart from Christ. Our value, friends, is nothing. This is the mistake that we have in Christian culture, that we think we can love God more if we feel that he sees value in us. The reality is, is that on the cross of Christ, I had no value, and yet he died for me. 
He gave his life for me. To put it another way, what's a better investment? To purchase someone, to keep the analogy, who has a billion dollars in their bank account? Or to purchase someone, like in Gomer's case, who not only doesn't have a value of zero, but's in the negative. You got to buy. She's, she's negative. She's, she owes somebody money, and yet Hosea will buy her back. She will, he, he will pay for her debt and then take her back. Now, the investment, clearly, all of us would say someone who has a billion dollars, but that's not what happens on the cross. On the cross of Jesus Christ, our value is zero, and yet God still dies for us. This is why I think many of us, we come to church feeling like God owes us. Because our theology of Christ is wrong. Our theology of the cross is wrong. The more you hear the cross is about you, the easier it is for you to come to church and be like, man, I can't wait for this to be over. I hope this preacher hurries up. I hope the worship goes by quick because I want to do the things that I really love to do. And in, a, in an attempt to, to make people feel important, what we've done is we've, 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 made, we've built people's ego up even more. In Spanish, there's a saying that goes, Te crees que eres la última Coca-Cola en el desierto. You think you're the last Coke bottle in the desert. And many of us apply that theology to the cross. I was so valuable that God died for me. No, I was not valuable. I was not valuable. And in my unvaluableness, God still shed his blood on the cross. And here in this passage, even though Gomer has cheated, she owes money, Hosea will take her back. Why does he take her back? Because he's expressing God's redeeming love. Make no mistake about it, friends. God's love is expressed through redemption, but he redeems sinful people, not important people, not people that have it all together, not people that, that are all that and then some. No, he redeems sinful people. And when we understand that, I can't help but come to a Sunday morning gathering and say, my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Our response is gratitude to a loving, gracious God. We need to understand God's redeeming love, and that's expressed in verse 2. In verse 3, and this will make sense as I go through verses 4 and 5, which is our main focus today, God's third love is expressed in this chapter through chastisement. Another word for that would be correction. Another word for that would be purification, if you understand the Jewish law of Moses and how people needed to go out of the camp and be purified for a certain amount of time and then they were allowed back in. I will read verse 3. This is Hosea's chastisement towards his wife and then we'll go into 4, how God will chastise Israel. Verse 3, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Now, in our culture... Oftentimes, God's love is expressed through faithfulness. Oftentimes, God's love is expressed through the redeeming of sinners. But the one area of God's love you never hear about is God's love corrects. 
Now, for those that have been with us week in and week out, you have learned this time and time again in the book of Hosea, that in love, he is correcting the people of Israel, his people, God's people. He is correcting them. And here in verse 3, Hosea says, I'll be faithful to you in love, Gomer. I will redeem you in love, but I'm also going to chastise you. Or I'm going to correct you in love. Now, how does he do it? He says, for many days. We don't know how many days. It just says, for many days. So, a long time, she is not to have sex with other men. Well, that's obvious. That should have been obvious from the moment she said, I do to him, right? I mean, all married couples would agree to that. But notice verse 3. It's not just to other men. But he says, I also will be to you. In other words, Gomer is not only not going to have sexual relations with other men, but Hosea is going to keep himself from having sex with his wife. Now, some of the ladies here might be like, oh, well, hey, man, that, that's easy, except that it's not you this passage is about. It's about Gomer. And what has Gomer shown time and time again? Her desire for what? Sex. That's her sin. This is her deepest desire. All she wants is sex. She wants sex from her husband, and that's not enough. So she goes to other lovers. So what is Hosea doing? Yes, I will be faithful to you. Yes, I will redeem you. But in love, I'm going to deprive you of the thing you desire most. The thing that separates you most from me is sex. Because it's not the sex that satisfies her marriage. That's been clear. She's sleeping around with other men. So Hosea, in the context of Hosea and Gomer, two real people, and we can't miss that. He is correcting his wife or purifying his wife from the things she desires more in love by not being intimate with her for many days. What's the purpose of this chastisement? So that Gomer would see Hosea as husband and not just as sex object. This is the point of this chastisement. And so we get to verse 4. This is where it makes most sense what Hosea is doing because God is going to chastise Israel. Only the difference here is, is that Israel doesn't have one sin. Gomer's only sin is sexual desire. She's lustful. She has a, a, a sexual crave that needs to be purified. But the children of Israel, they have Many things that need to be purified. Look at verse 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days. So Gomer, many days. The children of Israel, many days. What are their chastisements? This is the negation. The, the word without is the key here. So they will be chastised many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. There are many things that Israel needs to be purified from. This is how God is expressing his love. Yes, God's love is faithful. Yes, God's love redeems sinner, sinners, sorry. But God's love also corrects. It chastises. And verse 5 will explain why he corrects in love. So here are Israel's issues. This is what Israel needs to be purified from. Now we've read of this. I'll remind you of some of these things. The first one is, verse 4 tells us, Israel must be chastised. They must be purified 
from a desire to have a king. Why a king? What's wrong with having a king? Is it really that bad that Israel have a king? No, not really. It's the type of king they want that's bad. Let's go back to chapter 5. Well, in this case, moving forward, just jump with me to chapter 5, verse 13. We covered this passage early on in the book of Hosea. And here was sin's, uh, Israel's sin as far as a king goes. Chapter 5, verse 13 says, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his womb, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he was not able to cure you or heal your wound. Now, if you remember, we talked about this passage many weeks ago, and we explained that Israel went to Assyria to look for a king, and at the end of it all, what's the nation that ends up conquering Israel? Assyria. The same people they went to look for help are the same people. Oh, they'll get their king, all right. It just won't be the way they imagined it. They won't get an ally. They're going to get a ruler and a vicious ruler that will bring oppression to his people. So Hosea had already given the warning in verse 3. They need to be many days without a king. Why? Because when they're in exile, when they're captured by Assyria, then Israel will comprehend we never needed a king. What we needed was God. We didn't need an earthly ruler to make things right. What we needed was God. We needed him as king. And so they will be chastised. God will have to get this idea out of their heads that they need a specific king, an earthly king, instead of a heavenly king, a godly king. So God will chastise them. And when they go to exile, in this many days of exile, which will be years and years and years and decade after decade of exile, eventually it'll hit Israel. We don't need an earthly king. We need a heavenly one. And the same idea is in the second chastisement or in the second purification. Many days they will be without a prince. Now here, don't think of a specific person or a son of a king. Oftentimes in the Old Testament when a prince is mentioned, it really refers to political leadership and military leadership or economic prosperity. So when Hosea says they will be many days without a king, that's specifically a person, but when he says many days without a prince, what he's saying is Israel needs to get rid of the idea that what can make them successful is military power is this idea of economic prosperity if only our land could be prosperous then we'll make it if only we could have the strongest army then we'll make it and when they're in exile and they've got no prosperity because they're slaves and they've got no military army because it's been wiped out. And they've got no government in structure because they have no nation to, govern, to, to, to create a government from. Then they will remember that what they needed was God. Now, many of us here could be saying after weeks and weeks of hearing some of the similar things. Oh, Israel, Israel, Israel. When will the people of God learn? Except... We act this way in our time. How many of us here think, if only I was a U.S. citizen, boy, all my problems would disappear. If only President Trump was not in office, boy, all my problems 
would disappear. If, if only we had a real Republican candidate or a Democratic candidate or an independent candidate, then our economy would be good. Maybe I wouldn't be without a job. And, and we do this in our culture time and time and time again, even as Christians not realizing friends, it's not Trump that's the problem, it's sin and, and another candidate is not the solution. What this nation needs and more importantly, what you and I need is a faithful, loving God. We need Christ, friends. We need God. We do this. We play this game just like Israel. If only this was, if only my ideal government, whatever that is, was in place, not realizing that what we need is God, his provision, and his mercy, and his grace. And so God will chastise Israel they will be in exile without a king and without a prince until they finally realize we didn't need those things. What we needed was God. The next two clauses or chastisements or purifications are actually, they sound very holy. Israel will be without sacrifice and they will be without pillars or the Hebrew translation literally is without standing stones. Now, why is God chastising them or why is God keeping them from giving sacrifice? Think about this. If we were in, in Israel's time, it'd be like God saying to us, I'm going to close all the church doors. And no one can gather and worship him as a body of believers. And we would go, wait a minute, God, but I thought that that's what you wanted from us. I thought we were created, as Isaiah says, to glorify you and to worship you and to exalt you. And so we would go, this makes no sense, except that it does make sense. Why is Israel being chastised from making sacrifices? Because as we learned throughout Hosea, they give God synchristic worship. In fact, we spend a whole week talking about synchristic worship. What is synchristic worship? It's I will worship God and something else and someone else. So God and entertainment are of same importance. God and money are of same importance. God and whatever or whomever. You, you see the idea. This, is, this was Israel's sin. Remember, they worship Baals. They raised up Ashtoreth poles. They made not one golden calf like the people of Exodus, but they made two golden calves. They made their own idols so that people could, could worship them. In other words, they created a theology of, well, worship God, and when God doesn't seem to be working out, we'll go worship all Asherah and all these other things. And so God says, I will keep them from offering sacrifices until they remember how to do it correctly. How to, as the second commandment says, Worship God and God alone. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall make no images before me. You shall only worship God and God alone. So he will chastise them from making sacrifices. And the emphasis of pillar, you can write this down. Deuteronomy 16, 22 reveals their, their idol worship. Deuteronomy 16, 22 said, Never set up sacred pillars for worship, for the Lord your God hates them. 
Israel knew that God hated for, for them to raise up sacred pillars. And guess what? That's exactly what they did. So what will God do? He'll allow them to go through exile for many days, for many years, for many decades, until they realize we should have only been worshiping God alone. When they see their idols not answer their prayers, when they see their idols and the same idols that the other nations worship, the ones that are putting them through judgment, then they will remember that the only person they should have been worshiping is God. They should have never been raising up images. They should have never been making up idols. They should have never been putting other idols from other nations in their services. And so God will cleanse them from false worship. The next cleansing, the next chastisement is very similar. It has to do with priests and worship. They will be many days without ephod and teraphim. Now again, if, if we have no notion of the, the, the biblical uh, context of this time, we have no idea what's going on here. Specifically, if we've never read the Pentateuch, then we really have no clue why ephod is mentioned here. But let me explain to you. You can also write this down. If you don't believe me, you can read Exodus 28. The whole book, or the whole chapter, sorry, of Exodus 28 is the explanation of what priests are to wear and why they have to have ephod, in certain articles of clothing. So the priests needed to have ephod in their clothing in order to enter the holy place. And the high priest, one priest, who would enter the holy of holies once a year, also had ephod in his clothing. The, the emphasis here is God is saying, I will chastise you from priests. So again, so we can understand using a modern day example It'd be if in our context, God said, no more preachers. I'm getting rid of all preachers. You're going to come to church. There's not going to be any preachers. Now, some of you may say, glory, hallelujah, amen. That'll speed up the service. Maybe. Hopefully not. I hope not. But the point is, the priests were the ones who led the people. They're the ones who invoked the presence of God. So why is God eliminating them? Well, because they're not living holy lives. They're wearing the right attire, but their hearts are far from God. They're following the law of clothing, but their hearts are far from him. How do we know that? The next word, teraphim, was used in cultic worship. So this is not in the law. This is cultic worship, idol worship. It was statues or mass used for divination so, so that we can understand that it. it'd be like if we came together and we're worshiping God and then every so often I tell us, well, let's see what the horoscope tells us today. Any Leos in the house? Any Sagittarius in the house? Let me, let me tell you what your horoscope has to say for you. Many of you would be like, whoa, what's going on here? If I grabbed the magic eight ball and said, should you play the lotto after service? And oh, the magic eight ball said, yes, this is what's going on here. They had statues or masks that they would wear for divination. You see that the priests aren't just wearing the holy garments, but they're using other things that they were not supposed to use. Now to give a practical example for our day, the sin here, what God is chastising them is a false sense of religion. They are being religious 
and action, but their hearts have nothing to do with God. Now, how many of us do this day in and day out? We know what to do. We know how to play Christian life. We know how to play church where we look a certain way or we know how to post the right things a certain way but in reality we have not dealt with the hidden sin in our life this is why Israel is being chastised in this passage they have a false religion they're being phonies and in our day, I can't, I can't stress this enough. We don't even need applications for this. You and I could be honest. How many times we play church? How many times we flirt with sin and then we want to come to church and act like, well, you know, I got no problem of sin. That's why many of us, we have a hard time even singing our sins. They are many. His mercy is more. Because we don't think we have sin. We think we're self-righteous like the Pharisees. The Pharisees had no doctrinal problem. They had a self-righteous problem. They thought they had no sin. They thought they were good enough with just living church and not having a change of heart. And I fear for many Christians today who think just doing church is enough. And here's what most of us tend to do. We don't deal with our sin problem. We just try to add more good deeds. So I've got a sin problem. And the way I can eliminate that is, well, let me go feed the homeless. And I'll go to church three times a week. And let me get involved in this ministry, in that ministry. And we establish this theology based on point systems. Oh, I sinned, minus five. Oh, but I fed the homeless, plus two. And then I went to group, plus two. And then I went to church, even though I was mostly in the lobby. But there's another two points. Oh, I've got six points. Now I can go sin again. Okay, now I'm 10 to 6, so let me add more points and more points and more points. And let me add more holy days to my calendar. And, and let me add more fasting days to my calendars. And all these things are not done because we honor God and because we love God. We're doing all these things because we want to cover our sin and not repent from it. This is the sin of Israel. They're adding things to their schedule. They're doing all these things. They're wearing the right garment, but in the end, the one thing they have not dealt with is their sin. So what will God do in exile? He'll remove them from priests. He will remove them from divination until they finally realize our problem isn't making sacrifices. Our problem isn't wearing the garments according to the law. Our problem is a heart problem. I need to transform my heart, my life, and truly surrender to God. Now, why is this loving? Look, let's be honest. Ain't none of us like to be corrected. Think about all the whoopings. If your parents gave you whoopings when you were a kid, some of you have young kids, so now you're in the role of either giving timeouts or giving whoopings whenever need be. And you know that whoopings don't feel good. Let's just be honest. It don't feel good. No one goes, yeah, hit me more, mom. Hit me more, dad. No one does that. No one likes this. And so our, our flesh, and this is why I think too often we don't hear this message of love expressed in God because no one wants to spend 40 minutes hearing about how God's going to correct us and how God is asking us to repent and how God needs to remove things in our life. None of us want to hear that, and yet here's why it's loving. And this is why God does it. God does not correct. Please don't have this Catholic mentality of God is angry with me. He's mad at me. He's putting me on time out. No, that's not what's happening here. God's chastisement is for one purpose and one purpose alone. And it's found in verse 5. 
afterward. Some grammar here. It's an adverb. It's connecting two sentences. So after this correction, this chastisement, this time of purification, afterward, it's not just a, a connection of verses 4 and 5, but it's also a conclusion. It's a guarantee. Why did God chastise them from all these things? Why will Israel go through exile and, and be rid of all these things? Why? Verse 5, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. Why does God chastise and love? Because in the end, he wants us to see him, his beauty, his glory. We do need to ask ourselves this question this morning. Are there areas in my life that God needs to remove? For the single people or the dating people, not the married people. I'm going to clarify that one more time. For the single people or the dating people, not the married people. If you're married, then you honor God in marriage. But if you're dating, maybe God wants to remove a relationship that ain't no good for you. And if you're single, maybe your focus is on relationship status instead of it being on what your status is with God. Maybe there are other areas in our life that God needs to remove, but he needs to remove them so that in the end, we could see him. We could turn back to him and make him the center of our life so that we could seek him. So why is Israel going to go through all this years of exile and chastisement and purification and correction? Because then afterward, it's a promise, it's a guarantee, they will turn back to God. They're not going to play this game of church anymore. It's not going to be God and Baal. After the exile, Israel will know, oh, it was God all along. We will turn back to him. We will seek him again. And then there's an eschatological reference here, an end time reference. That's what the word eschatology means, end time reference. They will seek their God and David their king. This is why we read 2 Samuel during worship. David their king, wait a minute, but David's dead already. Are they going to go to his tomb? Are they going to go dig out his bones? Why is the reference of David's name mentioned here? Now remember, God will purify them from a king. See, it's not a king that God has an issue with. God has an issue with the kind of king Israel wants. The king they should be looking for is this Davidic kingdom that was promised in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, this everlasting kingdom. And what does the Davidic kingdom, let me rephrase that, who does the Davidic kingdom point to? Jesus Christ. It points to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus will come out of the lineage of David, and it's not David's earthly kingdom that will last forever. It's Christ's heavenly kingdom that will last forever. That's what will be eternal. But why is this important in this context? Because Israel doesn't need a new law. They don't need more Sabbath days. They don't need more feasts. They don't need another law. What they need is the recognition of who Jesus is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So when will this promise take into effect? For the people of Israel, when their eyes are finally unveiled, and they not only turn to God and seek him, but they see Jesus Christ 
in a sense, as you and I see him, as Lord and Savior. What does this say to us? Friends, we don't need more religion. We need a Savior. We need Christ. You may be here and you may think, I've got no problem with life. And you may be right. You may be well off economically. Your status may be well off. Job-wise, you may be well off. But guess where we're not well off? We all have a problem. It's called sin. And even the most well-off people have a problem with sin. Even the most comfortable people living in the comforts of life have a problem with sin. The gospel is not an improvement of social status. It's an improvement of darkness to life, of I was dead and now I am no longer dead but alive in Christ. I live in Christ and Christ lives in me. That is the gospel. Israel will need to see Jesus Christ as Lord, but you and I, we can already see him, I hope. And my prayer is that God would unveil our eyes so that we could see that his correction in love is meant to lead us right to him, to worship him, to glorify him, to exalt him and him alone. This passage reminds me of Romans 2.4. God's goodness is intended to lead us to repentance. And again, in our flesh, the, the, the wrestle is, how in the world can God taking away certain things from my life be good? And ultimately is good because we see him. I'll read the last portion of verse 5. They will return to seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Fear is a decent translation here by the ESV, but I think a better one, a more accurate one, at least to the language, is they will be in awe of the Lord and his goodness. You know what awe-ness is? Jaw-dropping, like, you know, like the cartoons, you know, like Bugs Bunny sees uh, the, the, the rabbit, I forget her name, but, but, but the, the other bunny, and then like, his heart is pumping out of his chest, and his eyes are, 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 are coming out. This is the, what, what the passage is telling us, that when we return to God, and when we see him, and when we see Christ, we are in awe. You want to know a Christian that understands God's love for them? They live Christian lives in awe of God. Not trying to do things to earn God, but doing things in awe of God. Mesmerized by God. Mesmerized by his goodness. I want to live for God because I'm in awe of him. His goodness, his love for me. Yes, God's love in Hosea is revealed in faithfulness. Yes, God's love in Hosea is revealed in his redemption of worthless sinners. And yes, God's love in the whole book of Hosea is revealed in his correction, not because he's being bogus, but because he wants us to see that what we need in this life is him and him alone. My charge to you this morning is, if you're far from Christ, return to him. Come back to him. And if you don't know who Christ is, 
You've never had an, an idea, a notion of who Christ is. Maybe you're in this room and you're wondering, do I really need Christ? The answer is yes. You do. I do. Not just the one-time Christ, an everyday Christ. I need him every day. I need his grace every day. I need his mercy every day. And even if it means removing some things in my life that separate me from him, well, that's fine because in the end, I'm in awe of him. I'm in awe of his loving kindness, his goodness, which leads me to repentance. He corrects Israel and Hosea. He corrects us today so that we can clearly see his goodness and who he is. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we close in prayer. I want to remind you that at the end of the service, we do go to what we call the lounge area, and some of you can pick up your kids, but if you're here, and this call is not for people in need, I want to be specific here, but if you want someone to pray for you, asking for repentance, I'll be here at the end, I'm going to ask Jay-Z to stay with me, and if there are other deacons here that can just join me in the front and We'll pray for you if you're either wanting to return to God because there are hidden sins in your life that you need to repent from, or if you have no idea what it means to be a Christian and you want someone to walk you through what that means, we'll be here about five minutes after service. So I'm going to close in prayer and then we'll stay here if you want to come up. But again, this is not if you're going through a need, and, and we would love to pray for you for that, but that'll be another time. Specifically praying for people who say, I am far from God and I want to return. Or for people who say, I have no idea who Christ is and I want to know more about him. I want to know more about this Savior. And so this will be a time that we'll leave after we pray. But let's close in prayer together. Father, we thank you. Because as we conclude Hosea, we see your love expressed in many ways. We've seen it throughout the book of Hosea and we've seen it clearly today. And I pray, Lord... For us in this room, if there are things in our lives that we need to get rid of, that we need to remove, Father, help us with your Holy Spirit to remove them. Father, today, if there are those far from you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction upon their lives so they could return to you so that they could seek you, so that they could be in awe of you, Lord Heavenly Father. Let us see your goodness this morning. Father, rip the veil of the enemy from our eyes so that we can see your loving kindness, so that we could see your redemptive love, so that we could see your faithful love, Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, and we all say amen.